0: In the first seven verses of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he referred to himself as an apostle of Christ by the will of God. It was pointed out to you that modern-day apostles are false. They are appointed, self-appointed apostles, or else they're appointed by others according to the will of man. Paul described the Ephesians and by extension all born-again Christians as saints. Saints are not people who the Pope in Rome venerates when they die. All true Christians are saints. They are holy. They've been made holy by the blood of Jesus. They're indwelt by the Holy Spirit who sanctifies them conforms them, transforms them by the renewing of their minds, your minds. If you're a Christian, I trust uh, your thoughts are very different to what they used to be by the grace of God, your desires, your hopes, your ambitions. It's all changed as a child of God. The things that used to interest you don't necessarily interest you anymore. And at the very top of your list of interests, of desires, of hopes, of things that you love, is Jesus. He's there at the very top. And you're a saint. If that is you, you are a saint. You are someone who trusts in Jesus as your saviour from sin. And such people are blessed with not one or two blessings, not even quite a few blessings, but all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We briefly looked at Psalm 103, where David, speaking to his own soul, enumerated some of his spiritual blessings. And it was seen that the first on the list was the forgiveness of all his sins we have all spiritual blessings, and all our sins are forgiven. When a hell-deserving sinner has forgiveness of all his sins, past, present and future, he most certainly is blessed in Christ Jesus. And there are people who struggle with this truth that the Christian is forgiven all his sins, They might say that you're forgiven all the sins up to and including when you first trusted in Christ. And from then on you have to do your very best as a Christian not to disobey God. And and we do do things wrong. I certainly do anyway. But all means all. Even in the next second, second after that, second after that, you will sin in your thoughts, if not in your words or your deeds. And of necessity... The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you from all your sins. We saw that the saints, far from choosing Christ, were themselves chosen by God. When? When you were first saved? Is that when God chose you? He perhaps looked down from heaven and thought, well, there goes a, a champion. I'd better save that one. Not at all. The, the, the decision was taken before the foundation of the world. Long before God said, let there be light. If you're a Christian, God chose you. Before you were conceived, before you were born, before you even did anything good or bad, God chose you to be holy and without blame in love and it's all about love again it's not a love that started sometime in your lifetime it's an everlasting love when God chose you he loved you long before you were born and having chosen you before the foundation of the world we saw that God predestinated you he predestined you it was your destiny in the fullness of time to become his child son or daughter through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ you can see all this in 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 John chapter 1 Galatians chapter 4 you can see it it is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that you become a son of God. It's not so much because you've trusted in Jesus. And by the way, the faith that you have is a God-given faith. Don't think that you concocted that faith within yourself. No one in this world would, or in and of themselves, manufacture a faith within them, in Jesus. It's a God-given faith. And it is that God-given faith that connects you to Jesus. The one who gives you the right, the power, the great privilege of addressing God as Father. And only the saints, those who are the elect of God, have any business addressing God as Father. And to make this point clear, I pointed out last week and I'll point it out again, that far from being your father... The wrath of God abides on you if you are not trusting in Jesus as your saviour from sin. Clearly the saints ascribe nothing whatsoever of their salvation and acceptance before God to themselves. If you understand anything of what we looked at last week salvation is entirely of the Lord. And this is something that people struggle with. We've got whole denominations of Christians that struggle with that. It's of God from start to finish, your salvation, his grace, the riches of his grace. And so what do you do? You give glory to God. You praise God and not yourself. And if you ascribe anything of your salvation to yourself, even if it's a tinsy wincy little bit, then give yourself a good pat on the back all the way to hell. It's salvation is of the Lord. Last of all, we saw that the forgiveness of sins, including your sins, dear Christian, is a consequence (coughs) of being redeemed, which essentially means means being liberated, you're redeemed with the blood of Christ. That was the ransom that was paid, the blood of Christ. We saw that there, look at verse 7. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. That's what it means to be redeemed with the blood of Jesus means to have forgiveness of all your sins, past, present and future and according to the riches of his grace. It's all because of God's mercy and his grace towards you. And the precious blood of Christ, when was that poured out? Well, we know the answer to that about 2,000 years ago, historically. But the Bible speaks of the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. I don't want to go into this now, but it's worth mentioning that before the foundation of the world, that's something that's worth thinking about. Not so much now, but perhaps later on. Jesus slain before the foundation of the world. Before Adam and Eve came into this world before that first act of disobedience in the garden, the lamb was slain. And that blood that was poured out at Calvary's cross in fulfillment of prophecy which speaks of God's eternal decree before the foundation of the world. It is that blood that cleanses you and makes you, gives you clean hands and a pure heart, clean inside and out, and fit to ascend the hill of the Lord and to enter into his presence, as always, clothed in Christ. I hope I'm doing a reasonable job of pointing out to you that it is all of Jesus, all of God and nothing of ourselves. And that is a wonderful thing, dear people. And I'm already off track with what I was going to talk about today. But quite frankly, I don't care. And I'll forget what I'm supposed to be talking about in a minute. But if nothing else, you need to recognise that. That it is all... Of God and His <coughs> love towards you, an everlasting love. Yeah, and if you appreciate that, if you can really, really understand that, then you are someone who can begin to praise and worship God as you ought to. Because looking at the other side of it, the flip side, if you are still holding something for yourself in all of this salvation, ascribing something to yourself, your praise will be far from perfect. Not that your praise as, uh, will ever be perfect, this side of eternity anyway, but you can only really praise God when you give him Not that we can give him anything, but I think you know what I mean. When you give him all the glory for the great things he has done. Not holding back, not holding anything for yourselves. And I'm saying that because I know that there are many Christians, perhaps, I don't know this for a fact, possibly the majority of Christians in this world who really don't see that. And that's because there's that thing called pride that still lurks within us. And because of that pride, we do have to blow our own trumpet. Far better if you don't blow your own trumpet and uh, and you just sing your praises to God. Let's move on now. Where we're continuing in from verse eight in Ephesians chapter one, where it is written, "Wherein he have abounded towards us in all wisdom and prudence." What is that wisdom and prudence? Well, I've got a, I've got a, a reference in my centre margin here that helps me out: Colossians chapter two, verse three. But really, what wisdom and prudence means is knowledge knowledge and understanding of spiritual things knowledge and understanding of spiritual things if you're not a born again Christian you do not have that knowledge and understanding of spiritual things your ears are deaf to those things you can't see those things think of um, Lydia in Acts of the Apostles what happened there? The Lord opened her heart to attend to what the Apostle Paul was saying. She became someone who was given wisdom and prudence, knowledge. She was able to know and understand spiritual things. The natural man, the unregenerate man does not understand spiritual things. We've seen this uh, if you yeah, were here last Sunday evening looking at the parable of the soils and Jesus says very clearly that, that, uh, that people need to have their ears opened, their eyes opened to understand spiritual truth. Otherwise they never really get beyond the earthly story. They never really understand the spiritual meaning of the parables. But more widely, that, that, that refers to things generally, spiritual things. You need to be a spiritual person, a saint, someone who's trusting in Christ, someone who's been born again. So wherein he, that's God, have abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, Look at verse 9. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he have purpose in himself. Quite deliberate there. The emphasis on the his and then another his and he. It's all about God, isn't it? That verse 9. What God has done. He had made known unto us the mystery of his will. If something is a mystery then it is hidden or it is a secret thing. That's what a mystery is. The thing spoken of that it was hidden but is now revealed, it's not the gospel of Christ. You might think it is, but think about it. The gospel of Christ, we can see it in the Old Testament. Very clearly, in fact, in certain passages of the Old Testament. You have a look at Psalm 22, for example, where the psalmist speaks about they pierced my hands and my feet he was speaking about jesus or look at isaiah 53 he was wounded for our transgressions bruised for our iniquities the chastisement of our peace was upon him with his stripes we are healed doesn't get more gospel than that does it he have laid on him The Lord have laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's pure gospel that. So the gospel has always been there but what I've just said to you there Psalm 22, Isaiah 53 and many other verses in the Old Testament that have clear gospel messages that was the preserve of the Jews of old initially. They were the custodians of the Old Testament Scriptures. They had the Gospel there, not just in the prophecies, but also in their law. And all the sacrifices that they were instructed to do, the, the animal sacrifices, they all pointed to the cross of Jesus. They all spoke about the an ultimate fulfilment in Christ, the Lamb of God. And then when Jesus came into the world... There was that fulfilment of all that we see in the Old Testament. And John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Ah, there you have it. All the animal sacrifices pointed to Jesus, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So it's not as if people were in darkness in the Old Testament times, and they weren't. Because Jews were being saved, there always has been a remnant of believing Jews, for example. And not just Jews either. There were Gentiles who came to faith, a real faith in God. And in the Christ who was to come into the world. Not many though. I don't know how many. I've no idea. But clearly not many. But then... About 2,000 years ago, when the Son of God came down from heaven, took upon himself flesh, and light came into the world. And so, the gospel message was, reached the whole world. It wasn't just the preserve of the Jews anymore, and one or two others. What is it that Jesus said to his disciples after he had paid the price for sin and he gave them a commission and he said all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. See the gospel net has been opened to catch people from all over the world baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. The fact that the Gospel was never meant to be forever more than the preserve of the Jews only can be clearly seen in John chapter 3 verse 16, where it is written, I'm sure this is one we all know, for God so loved the world, not just the Jews, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God gave and sent, sent and gave his only begotten Son for the world, all who believe. And if you've understood and not already forgotten what we've looked through last week, The world means all those who would come to faith. The elect, the ones who are loved with an everlasting love. Never lose sight of that. The world most certainly doesn't mean people who reject Christ now and go to their grave rejecting Christ. Jesus did not lay down his life for them. God did not send his son into the world for those who are condemned. But for the elect, those whom God has chosen and predestinated. Even now, the fact is that even though the gospel of Christ is being proclaimed worldwide, and it is, isn't it? Uh, not just in churches, but you go on the internet. Everybody in the world has access to the gospel. Even so, most people in the world will never believe. They will never be saved. Even if they hear it a thousand times. For it is given by God that only his elect will hear. Believe and be everlastingly saved. And this is all in accordance with God's good pleasure. And people might say to me, well, what about those people who don't have access to computers? So primitive tribes, maybe, I don't know, somewhere in Papua New Guinea, someone who's never had access to a computer, never seen a Bible, the missionaries have never reached them, they've never heard about Jesus. What about them? Are you saying that they won't be going to heaven, well all I can do is repeat what I've already said here, that God has an elect and in the, in the, in the fullness of time the elect come to faith in Jesus, that's what I know from the scriptures. So it doesn't really matter where you are in the world. It doesn't really matter what your circumstances are. God arranges things. He is in control of everything. Never mind what anyone else is doing or whether they believe or not. You, in here, don't worry at the moment about the person in the primitive tribe. Think about yourself. You are hearing the gospel in this place. Do you believe what you hear? That's what matters. And notice, verse 9 still, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he had purposed in himself. It's always in accordance with God's good pleasure. Look at verse 5. It says there, at the end of verse 5, according to the good pleasure of his will. Verse 7, according to the riches of his grace. And verse 9, according to his good pleasure, which he had purpose in himself. That's very clear, isn't it? It's all in accordance with God's good pleasure. Again, look at the flip side of that. It's nothing to do with how wonderful you may think you are. It's God's good pleasure. In verse 10, we get to see what God's good pleasure, which he had purposed in himself, is. Let's have a look at verse 10. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, this is God's good pleasure, to gather all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, or in him. The dispensation of the fullness of time is the time between the first and the second coming of Jesus. It spans from when he came down from heaven as a suffering servant and in particular when he became obedient unto the death of the cross, that span reaches to when he will come again in judgment at the end of the world. That is the fullness of times. The last days it's also spoken of. We're in the last days now. The gospel age between the first and the second coming of Christ. And he will come again with power in glory to judge the living and the dead. During this period of time, all power in heaven and in earth is given to Jesus. I mentioned that when he gave that commission to the disciples. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Given by his Father which means that everything is in subjection to Christ. For most people in the world, at the very most, Jesus was what? Those who actually acknowledge that Jesus exists, ever existed. Jesus was a historical figure who met his end when he was put to death, and they may well add, well, Jesus was a good man, he went around doing good things, but he was put to death. And there are those who will go even further than that. They will acknowledge that Jesus paid the price for sin, although that's worth looking into that, but when they then go on to say that, uh, well, he wasn't actually God. He wasn't God in the flesh. So there Jesus, who paid the price for sin, is not... As the Bible teaches, the incarnate Son of God, God manifest in the flesh. And when you continue to talk to them, you find out that perhaps that Jesus was nothing more than the archangel Michael or a prophet of God, albeit a sinless prophet. Well... Let me tell you that the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world and who paid the price for sin, all your sin, if you're a Christian, is the Son of God, the incarnate Son of God. And it's only Jesus who can, as God, he can have one hand on God As man he can have one hand on man and bring God and man together reconciling men, women, boys and girls to a holy and righteous God. Not an angel, not a prophet, but God manifest in the flesh. It really is just the elect of God who have been redeemed with the blood of Christ, the sinless Son of God. And they know him as the man who is God and who is now highly exalted and seated at the right hand of the throne of God where he reigns supreme over everything. We see it in here in verse 10 again that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. In other words, everything in Christ, God, who has been given power over all things. And he reigns supreme, having paid the price for sins, with his own precious blood. I for one, having been chosen by God for salvation, thank God that despite all the evil that is being per- uh, perpetrated in this wicked world, this, by rulers who legislate, what do, let's just take our island. What have they done here? Our rulers, those who have authority over us, well, Okay, where do we start? How about the civil partnerships, the same-sex marriage? This is an attack on the Word of God, God's way of doing things. It's quite deliberate. And then, more recently, making it easier for babies to be killed. Abortion. And, you know, sometimes it, it troubles me when I don't see... uh Christians recoiling in horror, and they still speak so highly of their leaders. You really have to think about it what these people have done, and they call it women's health care. I've said it enough times, and I'll say it again. As far as our duty to love our neighbour as ourselves goes, the royal law of God. I cannot think of any greater violation of that law than killing innocent babies. I really can't. And the the blame is firmly upon the shoulders of our rulers who make that legislation as much as anyone else. Understand that they are wicked people. They really are. I've spoken to them, and they they laugh in my face as they try and tell me that those babies which are slaughtered in their mothers' wombs are nothing more than the products of conception. They're wicked people. We live in a wicked world. Wicked leaders. And all of us are sinners, apart from the grace of God, hell-deserving sinners. Paul, the apostle, called himself a wretched man. John Newton, in his hymn, spoke about God saving a wretch such as he is. We need to understand these things as well as holding on to the truth that God is 100% responsible for salvation. And what is it he saves? Wretches. And for any Christian to imagine that he somehow uh, has something to do with his salvation, that God perhaps looked along the corridors of time and saw that this person was going to believe in Jesus, so he chose him and, uh, you know, it's nonsense. If you're getting confused with what I've just said, it's because it's utter nonsense that people believe. But basically they're giving themselves a little bit of credit for their salvation. A, they haven't understood how sinful sin is, how desperately wicked the human heart is, and how holy and righteous God is. They haven't grasped it. But this is how it is. This is a world we live in and we thank God for his goodness towards us if we are saved by his grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a, it's an, it's a wonderful thing to know that Jesus is is in control of everything. I I want to speak more about this, but I'll wait because the, the opportunity will come when we reach the end of this chapter to speak more about just how much Jesus is in control of everything that goes on in this world and beyond. And if you're a saint trusting in him, How wonderful that is, to think that your Saviour, the one who laid down his life on the cross, is in charge, he's in control of everything. How wonderful that is. Let's have a look at verses 11 to 14. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated, we've had that word already, haven't we, somewhere, verse 5. So, I'll start again, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose, here we go again, God's purpose, of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, (coughs) that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation in whom also after that ye believed ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise which is the earnest of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. There's a lot in there, isn't there? Paul is uh, having talked about the wonderful blessings in Christ Jesus. He's saying, and this, this is you. You Ephesians, you are recipients of this grace of God. You also are loved with an everlasting life. And let's see what he says in these verses here about the Ephesians, not just them, but of course us here if we believe in Jesus. I hope you have not failed to notice that all spiritual blessings Everything that Christians now are and that they now have is in Christ. And as can be seen in verse 11, that includes obtaining an heavenly inheritance. A heavenly inheritance. As Paul said in Romans chapter 8 verse 15 to 17, I read it earlier on for you, I'll read it again. Ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. This is the Holy Spirit within you, dear Christian, witnessing with your own spirit, your soul, that you are a child of God. And if children, then heirs of God. And joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Makes sense, doesn't it? And and it brings home the reality of being a child of God. It's not just fancy words. If you're a Christian, you really are a child of God. So much so that, as a child of God, you have an inheritance. That's how real it is. <laughs> Again, everything's in Christ there. If you're a Christian, your sonship is in Christ, who is the eternal Son of God, and you are a joint heir with him, the eternal Son of God. He is always has been, always was, always shall be the Son of God. You are a son or a daughter of God by adoption. doesn't matter. You're an heir and a joint heir with Christ. What a blessing that is. What a grace of God uh, towards you that is. Thoroughly undeserved. I hope you realise that. Completely and utterly undeserved. Note, uh, not so much in our passage in Ephesians, but in what I just said there in... um, Yeah, what I just said in Romans, that your airship... Is seen in your present sufferings. You are a joint heir with Christ, if so be that you suffer with Him. That suffering is evidence. In other words, it's proof that you really are a child of God, having been chosen by Him before the foundation of the world. So being a child of God is, is a, a, a reality. Having an inheritance is a reality. Those two realities are seen in the reality of suffering with Christ. None of this is just an academic exercise. This has to be the experience, your experience of a child of God with a, a, heavenly, a heavenly inheritance that you suffer with Christ, that there is suffering in your life for Christ's sake. The Bible speaks enough about it and I go on about it often enough. I, I, I justify that by saying that I can't help it. I, I preach the whole counsel of God and it comes up time and time again. It is given unto you not only to believe in Christ but to suffer for his sake. There's a challenge for you. When did you last suffer for Christ's sake? Serious. As for what your inheritance is, you are an heir of God. That's what it says in Romans, an heir of God. So God is your inheritance. God is your portion and what more could you possibly ask for? I don't want to make people feel sorry for me to, by telling you what my inheritance was when my dad died. Well, it was quite good actually, his dog. I couldn't have asked for more a beautiful creature, and I had some lovely years with that animal. But that was it. <laughs> Nothing against the dog, but <laughs> that really was it. Um, <coughs> but if you're a Christian, a saint, you're, you are an heir of God. I like what the Bible commentator, Robert Haldane, said. He said, God is the portion of, of his people, and in him, who is the possessor of heaven and earth, they are heirs of all things. God is all-sufficient, and this is an all-sufficient inheritance. God is eternal and unchangeable, and therefore is an eternal inheritance, an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away. It is God himself, then, who is the inheritance Of his children. That sounds good to me. What more could you ask for? When Jesus comes again. He will say to you. Dear Christian. Come ye blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you. From the foundation of the world. And you will take possession of the new heavens. And the new earth. Wherein dwelleth righteousness. But even now. You have a foretaste of heaven in that you are sealed not by but with the Holy Spirit of promise according to verse 13. Look at that again, verse 13. In whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed ye were sealed with That Holy Spirit of promise. Emphasis on sealed with. What does it mean to be sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise? What does it mean to be sealed with God, the Holy Spirit? If you are a child of God, just imagine that your Heavenly Father has given you a pledge of a heavenly inheritance. And that means that God would have given you a guarantee, a pledge, a guarantee that when you die, you're going to inherit all wonderful things. You'll have a heavenly inheritance, things that we can't even, I can't speak about because I can't, I can't even imagine it. I know that we have a heavenly inheritance. I've just told you that our inheritance is God. I can say these things, but I'll, I guess we'll all have to wait until we receive that inheritance to know exactly what it means. But if you receive a, a pledge or a guarantee, that means that, that God, he gives you a promise. When you die, you're going to receive that inheritance. And that will be good. That would be really good, wouldn't it? Because God doesn't lie. And if God makes a promise, unlike us, he'll keep that promise. You can be sure of that. But that's not what it means, actually. Ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, looking at verse 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of God of his glory so it's an earnest, Paul says earnest which is far better than a a promise a, a guarantee because it is a foretaste it is a deposit of that inheritance an earnest is a deposit, there you go, take that God's giving you some of that inheritance now, not just promising that you will get it, there's some now A foretaste of heaven. It's something that has already been given to you. That should uh, make sense to you, if you're a Christian, that you already have a foretaste of heaven. How can you know that you have a foretaste of heaven? The earnest of that um, heavenly inheritance. Presumably you look heavenwards you don't your head's not in the clouds all the time but you do think of heavenly things you want to be there you really really do want to be there with jesus that's your heart's desire to go and be with jesus where he is and behold his glory the glory of the the one who loved you and gave himself for you at the cross that would be a fulfilment of everything as far as you're concerned when finally you get there but you have a taste of that now as a Christian when we come to church but not just then when you're alone even Jesus is with you, isn't he? You speak to him you hear his voice you follow him You don't just hear his voice but you're doing what he tells you with the spirit working in you to will and to do of God's good pleasure. All of this is a present reality, is it not? You're not interested in building for yourself an earthly mansion, building an empire for yourself. You know that Jesus has gone to prepare a heavenly mansion for you. That's that's more than enough, isn't it? Or at least it ought to be. You rejoice and praise God because, by the grace of God, you—I'm still speaking present tense here—you have the boldness, the liberty to enter into the holiest, to heaven itself by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he have consecrated for you through the veil, the the veil or the curtain has been opened wide and you have the liberty, the holy boldness to enter through that curtain into the holiest, which is his flesh, this new and living way. And this is present tense. it's as if you're already in heaven now or you've got one foot in heaven and the other foot still here in this miserable world i'll finish with a word of warning to those of you who have not yet trusted in jesus and even undeluded believers unbelievers talk about going to heaven don't they you've probably heard it maybe you did it yourself before you became a christian talking about going to heaven when you die maybe you're one of them now maybe you do not trust in christ as your savior from sin but even so you've still got some fanciful idea of going to heaven obviously not a heaven where god is or where jesus is you might have some angels there probably more fairies and pixies and leprechauns and things but not god And maybe you'll see your mates there, catch up with friends, lost relations, pursue your favourite hobbies in heaven. You've got it all worked out, what you'll be doing when you get to heaven. Let me tell you that far from having a heavenly inheritance, be warned that when Jesus comes again in judgment, he will say to you who are not trusting in him, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. That is your inheritance. Therefore, show repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and know with an absolute certainty that can only come through being sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise that you really are an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ, Jesus, your Lord, your Saviour. Amen.